Nature abhors a vacuum. Science has proven this, and we were glad to receive the evidence, because we know this. We know that nature abhors a vacuum. We have seen the effects of space with power unoccupied suck power into it. Nature abhors a vacuum. That was what I summarized in a dialogue with a friend several years ago when we were discussing the still unrest in the Middle East. This conversation had to have happened five years ago at least. And she was wondering out loud how it is that with the toppling of regimes that were tyrannical and cruel, how is it that we now still have leadership in some parts of the world that are tyrannical and cruel? My only idea was that nature abhors a vacuum. When there is a space, something will fill it. This is also the point that I made in meeting with Kristen and Martin, as I do with every parental group and God-parental group as they prepare for the baptism of an infant. You know that there are opportunities for those who are old enough to speak to speak about their renunciation of evil. There are three renunciations on page 302 of the Book of Common Prayer. They will be asked to renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. They'll be asked to renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God and to renounce all sinful desires that draw them from the love of God. And my point in the power of the renunciation in using your voice to proclaim that you do not want that means that now there's a lot of space. The house has been cleaned and what will come in and so immediately following on those renunciations, they are invited to fill that new space, that uninhabited space, with the power of God. By turning to Jesus Christ and accepting them as their Savior, putting their whole trust in his grace and love, and promising to follow and obey him as their Lord. To be filled with the life-giving power of God, the power of God's love, is to be given over to the passionate love of God. There are two ways to demonstrate our love for God, through action and through passion. We have a hang of what it means to be action-oriented in our love for God. It is to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give the homeless a home, to care for the widow and orphan, to tend to the needy, to visit the sick, those who are homebound or in prison. We know what it means to show through action our love of God. But we're not as familiar with what it means to show our passionate love for God. We see an example of it in today's reading from Acts. Here people are given over. They have given themselves over to the power of God. And that's what's demonstrated in our reading from Acts. Gathered together in a room, they allow themselves to be taken by the Spirit of God. They don't go anywhere, but something happens in and through them. 
They speak the good news of Jesus in a language that others can understand in all of its variety. I think it's interesting that in the scriptures from this morning, those who witnessed it, some of them wondered if those who were doing this were drunk. Maybe that's one of the only or few ways we understand passion. If you've ever been drunk, you know that once you're drunk, you can't decide to not be drunk. It has you. The drink has you. And you have to ride it out until it has you no longer. I wonder what it might be for each of us to be open to giving ourselves over to love of God through passion. Allowing God to come in us and to do with us what God wants to do with us. I imagine it will be a transformational experience. I know it will be a transformational experience. I invite you to demonstrate your passionate love for God every Sunday. Maybe you weren't aware that you've been praying this way every Sunday, that I've been here almost three years. When I invite you in the time of silence at the beginning of worship and following the homily to pray God's prayer in you, what is God's prayer in you? These words did not originate with me. They were given to me by my spiritual director some eight years ago at my first meeting with her. I came in exhausted, sat in the chair opposite her and said, I want a prayer life and I don't want to be in charge of it. I'm in charge of a lot of things. And I don't want to be in charge of my prayer life. I don't want to decide whether I do morning prayer, the whole thing, or just parts of it. Do I have 20 minutes? Do I not have 20 minutes to do this? Maybe I should do a devotional guide. Maybe I don't like that devotional guide and I should change it. I was exhausted by trying to have a prayer life. And so I said to her, can I have a prayer life and not be in charge of it? And she said, yes. Quiet yourself, Whitney, and say to God, what is your prayer in me? And let God answer. I started that practice more than eight years ago, and I've never looked back. It has taken me more deeply into the love of God than I even thought was possible, drawn me close in the scriptures, brought me to prayer more often than I ever did when I was in control of it. There was a yearning within me for God to fill it, and only God could fill it. I came to realize that God wants the best for me, and God doesn't see any reason why he should deny himself that desire of his the best for me. I become a companion to God's prayer when I invite God to do with me what God wants. I get to realize what it is that God wants for the fullness of my life, for his glory. You may have heard some version of this kind of quote, there's a God-shaped void in each of us, Has anyone familiar heard something like that around? I googled it and um, to figure out who it is that said it and it was fascinating to read who it is that people thought had said it and even what people thought it was. 
It's actually um, a paraphrase or a reiteration of something that Blaise Pascal said many years ago. It's been credited to C.S. Lewis. It's been credited to St. Augustine. And the interpretation of it along the way has morphed and changed. And what I believe is happening with that is there's a truth there that people know and they take it on as their own and they try to get the heart of what it is. But I think it's neat to realize who it is that said it first originally, even as it's been interpreted over all these years. So I want to share with you Blaise Pascal's actual quote. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. God longs to fill us with his spirit and to lead us in the life that is abundant beyond what we can ask or imagine. We'll see the evident of God, evidence of God's spirit at work in our lives because of the fruit it'll generate. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the list Paul gives us in his letter to the Galatians. The fruits of the Spirit. When God fills us, we are productive in those things that not only bring us joy and fullness of life, but the same to those around us. So it is my prayer as we hear the godparents and the parents make their renunciations to claim the promises that they long to fill that now clean space, that now empty space, that we'll join with them in saying the same. And with the illustration that we read about in the book of Acts, we might see what it is to let God have God's way with us, to show our passionate love for God by giving ourselves to God and allowing God's love to be made known for his glory. Amen. Amen.